Hi folks, this is Jack Spirit here with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Arlington, Texas. Where the hell did that come from? Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. See folks, I don't do a lot of editing. Sometimes I actually screw things up. And I guess after three years of doing that, uh, it sometimes comes back. But we are coming to you from TSPN, the Survival not, uh, podcast network headquarters high atop the highway seven ridge line in hot springs village arkansas today is friday it is august the 5th 2011 and today is episode 718 and it's friday 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 and that means what that means one most people in america are at the end of their week and they're going to get some time off and it also means that it's listener call in friday that means that you guys have picked up the phone sometime in the past you've mashed some numbers and those numbers if you want to call in for a future show are 866-65 think again 866-65 t-h-i-n-k and the ones that get on the air the ones that are clear concise get to the point ask a question or make a point quickly uh, you get about two minutes to do that, and it's also the people that don't call from a moving vehicle with the windows down or running a weed eater or something like that. And every once in a while, I get calls from people that are really bat-crazy people, people that are part of the tinfoil hat brigade, and they always say things like, I bet my call won't get on the air. Well, I've got one for you today. You'll hear it later. The guy's mind-numbingly boring, but I'm going to play it anyway just so I can respond to it because he's full of crap, and I got the proof that he's full of crap. So we have that to look forward to today, too. But... The way to get on the air is know what you're going to say before you pick up the phone and make the call. Be directed to the point. And I'll tell you right now, it used to be the case that if you called, you were getting it on the air as long as I could hear you. Um, the call volume has gone up. And with doing one show like this a week, I can't really get everybody on the air anymore. So I'm having to screen calls a little more rigorously now. I'm going to try to do something with that backlog. Maybe go uh, to maybe doing one week a month where I do two shows like this or something. Because I want to respond to this. I know some of you guys don't like the listener call-in shows. To those of you that don't like listener call-in shows, listen to the one or the other roughly 600 shows that are out there on a call-in day. Because I care about the audience. And I care about everybody out there. And as long as the calls are coming in, I'm going to take the time to answer them before I take your first call today though let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you making sure the show is here for you five days a week monday through friday by supporting the show financially and providing excellent service and product to the audience I don't say this often. I want to say it today, though. I want to remind you guys, especially new listeners, how you get to be a sponsor on the Survival Podcast. You say, I want to be a sponsor. And I say, yeah, great. What do you do? And you tell me. And I go, okay, that looks good enough to at least put you to the stage two. And then I throw you to the moderators on the forum who are the listener ad council. They run eBay reputations, better business reports. They do anything to find out, do you take care of your customers or do you screw them over? We don't say, hey, do you charge the right price? That's anti-capitalist, but we do make sure that you advertise what you provide, and when somebody orders it, they're going to get it on time, and what you represent, you provide, you provide that. If you don't do that, and two or more, or two or more of my moderators decide that I can't take you as a sponsor, I can't take your money. That sounds insane. That sounds crazy, but because of that, there's about a two-year wait to be a sponsor on the show right now, uh, and that's a guess, because I really don't know, because sponsors don't generally leave. But I want the audience to know that when you deal with our sponsors, that's the kind of screening process that they go through. When you hear me say our sponsor is, it is a personal endorsement 
by me. It is not somebody that just showed up with a check, and I think that's important. Perfect example of that is silverandgoldshop.com. Been with us so long, they actually changed their name. They used to be teapartysilver.org. They are a great source of silver and gold coins, especially unique collectibles in the silver coin market. Some really cool stuff tied to some history that if you give them to your kiddos, your nieces, your nephews, and things like that instead of plastic crap, you can tell a story along with that, talk about lasting value, and hey, they belong in your portfolio too. Remember, I believe that the average American, if you're smart, will have five, five to 10% of your total net wealth in silver and or gold. I think it just makes sense as a hedge against inflation. I'm not the guy that says go out there and spend all your money in silver and gold. It's the only safe place because that is a fool's game. We never do one thing with any one of our resources, but some part of them belong there, and there is nobody better to deal with than Mary Beth Maidmont over at silverandgoldshop.com. Next up today is Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy because, you know, all this stuff that I talk about growing that you've never heard of, like Oroch and Lamb's Quarters and all this stuff you can get from CSAs and farmer's markets, Armenian cucumbers and all this stuff, you're like, what do I do with it? What? I've never cooked with this stuff before. I don't know what to do with it. Chef Keith will teach you to keep cook seasonally and locally. He focuses on technique and recipe together so that you can take the recipes and change them around and make them fit or suit whatever you want. He's a great personable guy. He responds to people on his message board. He gives great support. Everybody that I've ever heard from him that's dealt with him has emailed, that's emailed me about him has said what a great experience it was. So check out HarvestEating.com with Chef Keith Snow and learn to turn all of that cool stuff that's in your backyard, your garden, and your local markets into really good quality food for your family and make it suitable for the table. Next up, I want to remind you guys we are running a special for MSB members only. Bread from Gasoline, video by Stephen Harris, biggest expert I can find on alternative fuels, especially for home use. Five bucks instead of 35 bucks for all members of the MSB. Just log in. There's a special link right on the home page. That link comes down tonight at midnight, and it doesn't come back. So make sure you take advantage of it while you got a chance. I'm also running a sale on the member support brigade. 20% off any membership term. Does not, does not, does not apply to the recurring membership. I get people sometimes say, I want to join for a year, but I don't want automatic renewal. Fine, join for a year, and then cancel your subscription. And then when your new one comes around and you're ready to, to sign back up, log into your account, you'll get a message, and you can renew. So uh, there's no other way to do that. That's how the system works. That's how it's designed to work. But it gives you complete control and flexibility. Some people sometimes ask me, Jack, why do you use PayPal? Number one, I get on the show all the time and say, no credit cards. If you fund your PayPal account with a credit card, that's your business. But PayPal is a way that I can take your payment electronically without accepting credit cards. I can't tell you not to have one and then go, hey, sign up for the MSB with your Visa or MasterCard. I just don't think that's cool. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive uh, content available only to members. You get discounts from 29 different vendors and really cool deals like you know, every once in a while that come along like this deal with Stephen Harris. All right, with that, I'm ready to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Start taking your questions, your calls, your comments. Let's go ahead and take that first caller now. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here. I uh, just had a couple of firsts this weekend. Uh, we picked uh, fresh berries off of our property for the first time, and I just harvested my first batch of radishes from my garden. Uh, but the biggest first was my family one going through and weathering a tornado Sunday. Um, we're in PA. We're not in an area that's normally prone to tornadoes, and one came right up the back road, and... Um, I just felt the storm, saw one-inch hail, couldn't even see out the windows. The wind and rain were beating so hard, and 
sure enough, no one confirmed that it had been a level one tornado had passed through our area, probably probably past 50 yards from the house. Thankfully, uh, myself and children were safe. We had our little automated flashlights that kicked on, and uh, that was uh, definitely an experience. So you never know when an uh, experience will happen. Well, first, congratulations on uh, harvesting the first stuff on your property. It's always a big deal, and it always leads to more. Um, I think that what happens when we start off with a little bit is eventually we develop a pathway to abundance. And the more Americans we can get developing that pathway to abundance and producing their own food, the less disaster uh, that we have to come up to have to worry about. I mean, I look at gardening and storing food and, and, and making this a community thing and getting it out there in the open and not being uh, you know, hiding about it is like, well, let's say you brought a fire marshal to your home and said, I want to know what I do if the house catches on fire. How, what's the best evacuation plan? Where should we, you know, what should we have in place and be ready for when the fire comes? And he's going to say, well, I can tell you all that. But the first thing I'm going to tell you is, here's a list of 20 things that if you do them, you're probably not going to have a fire in your home. Here's a list of 10 more things that if you do them, if there is a fire, it's probably going to be easily controlled and you're not going to have to worry so much about, you know, losing everything. And then we'll talk about, well, if all that fails, this is how you get out of your house. So all the time we hear about food shortage, this, bad economy, that, on and on and on. And then people sit around and go, oh, man, this is really bad, you know, and we got to be prepared for it. Well, the thing is, if we get enough Americans growing some portion of their own food, that's like all that fire prevention stuff. So just wanted to say that. Now on the tornado I put this on because I want to make sure that people understand something. I get a lot of questions about tornadoes in Arkansas, Jack, tornadoes in Arkansas. And I'll say something to the effect of, look, there's tornadoes throughout the south. Uh, we picked a location up in the mountains, and that generally has a lower incidence of tornadoes. And then there's a tornado on a mountain somewhere. People go, look, there's a tornado on a mountain. It's going to get you. Um, and then here's a gentleman up in Pennsylvania. And you can tell that this call came from about probably four weeks ago or more. This is a June call when we were still having that massive tornado outbreak this year. Uh, and the reality is, and this is what's important, and you know, I just did a show on where are you going to live and talked about suburbs and true rural and things like that. No matter where you live, whether we look at breaking down the demographics that way or we look at the geography, there's no place in the United States or on the face of planet Earth where you can guarantee you're not going to deal with a disaster. What about the new Madrid fault line, Jack? Well, there's, there's a fault line there. There could be an earthquake someday. I mean, there could be an earthquake anywhere someday. And if it's not an earthquake, it could, you know, the person that writes me about the new Madrid fault line lives on the East Coast where, the, you know, if the, there's an island off the coast of Africa where if that volcano there ever blows and it slides in, the East Coast is going to be underwater. Well, what about that? We can't prepare for everything, but we can be prepared for most things. And simple things like having, you know, the plug-in flashlights to turn on and become night lights as soon as the power goes off and can be picked up and used as flashlights. Those probably helped, uh, you know, the caller's kids be a little more calm in the situation, having some water on hand because they didn't get hit by the tornado 50 miles away, but it probably disrupted utilities. And depending on how big and how large the impact, you know, if you are in ground zero, you can only do so much. But if you're, if you're on the outskirts of ground zero of these, these events, all these preps that we talk about pay off in such a big way. And that allows you then to be a good member of your community instead of a tinfoil hatter and step out into the area where the damage occurred and help your neighbors put things back together. If we are not taking a holistic approach as preppers, folks, we're deluding ourselves.
All right, the people that believe, I've said this before, I gotta say it again today, because it just taps me. It's nothing the callers and it just makes me think of it. The people that believe, I'm gonna set up this fortification, and I'm gonna defend it, and I'm gonna have little lookout LPOPs on it, and me and my 12 buddies are gonna ride out the zombie apocalypse, and we're not gonna help anybody, and everybody can screw off, and we'll be fine, are delusional. They're absolutely delusional. I'm sure some of you listen to the show, and I'm sure you're very angry at me right now, but you're delusional. I don't care. I do not care how well fortified you think you are. If we ever get into the level of disaster you're talking about, you will not deal with a human wave attack, which is sooner or later what you'll end up with. If we are going to make a, a coalescent plan as a community, we need to start at the community level so that if you want to go off and live that way, fine, fine, but... If there's enough hungry people around, you're not you're not going to be able to handle it. And I, I say that both as the, the compound approach and to the parasites that think I'll just go around and steal whatever I want. I want you to think about this. Here's a fundamental reality. All over the world, well, especially in two places right now, we have U.S. military platoon infantry platoons. They have small arms. They have uh, air support. They have uh, access to uh, additional weaponry. Uh, they have light armored equipment. They have heavy armored equipment. And they go into these towns and they get tore up. And they have a huge supply chain. Uh, the people that think you're going to live that way, you don't have anywhere near the armament. You don't have anywhere near the support. And you don't have anywhere near the supply chain. So if you really want to fortify your community and be prepared for little things like tornadoes or big things like a complete collapse of the economy, you better start building community now. You better start reaching out. You better start growing some food and lay off the nonsense of, if I grow a garden, they'll come take my tomatoes. you got to get off of that stuff, folks. And I know I'm, I'm preaching a little bit here today, but see, to me, this is important. And, and I get emails from people, and you're going to hear from a nut job here in a bit, a totally different subject, but a nut job. Um, all the time about how people know who you are. Of course they do. And if they didn't, there wouldn't be a survival podcast. There wouldn't be a community of 25,000 people now. That's what one person can do. So what if each one of you out there made 10 more people into preppers? I don't care if they listen to my show. I don't care if they're part of the direct community. If you just each one of you out there said, well, if this guy can make 25,000 people pay attention, I can make 10. That's a quarter million. That's a long way from where we were just a few years ago, isn't it? And I think that we have a lot of progress to be made. So, number one, I'm glad that your your family was okay, and I'm glad you're harvesting things, and I'm, I'm glad you guys didn't get too much damage. And, uh, folks, when you see something happen around you, get out there and help. It'll make a big impact. And hopefully when something really, really bad occurs and you happen to be in ground zero, uh, if you have the right attitude, I believe in karma, and maybe somebody will be there to help you. Because those of you that think you can go it alone, when you're ground zero on an F4 or an F5 tornado, if you're ground zero on a tsunami, if you're ground zero on a lot of these natural disasters, I don't care how prepared you are. When everything is buried and crushed, it's not going to do you a lot of good. Let's take another call. Jack, it's Chuck in South Texas, uh, Country Boy 75. Um, recently, uh, finally, my wife talked me into getting horses. I was thinking uh, maybe you'd consider doing an episode uh, specifically about survival purposes and uses uh, with horses. Uh, maybe I can blend her, uh, her need for this hobby with uh, some practical use. Uh, anxious to hear what you got to say. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Jack. Well, uh, today's episode 718, and I have never really done a show that's gone into horses. And after 718 shows, 
in over three years, if I haven't done a show on a topic, you can pretty much uh, come to this conclusion. It's something Jack doesn't know an awful lot about. Uh, I've been around horses uh, on and off throughout my life, but I've never actually had to, to be responsible for taking care of them. And I've never had to deal with a horse that wasn't already trained and able to be ridden and, and approached and handled. So when it comes to all of the actual care aspects of a horse, I'm not real familiar with it. I can tell you that uh, I like them, and my my you know thought has always been that a horse was uh, best owned by somebody else and ridden by me for a fee when I you know had to hanker in to do it. Uh, and that's the approach I've taken to now. So I don't have a lot of information. What I can tell you is this: they're a big animal and they require food. So one thing you're going to have to do is make sure you either have enough pasture and or feed uh, to make sure you can support them in a lean time, or they're not going to be a use for you other than maybe. Well, I know some people are going to get mad at me, but. It would be a big old hunk of protein if it came down to it. Uh, but I think they have much better uses. But you have to have all of their care and need uh, provided for or, you know, the, 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 you're, they're actually a, a resource sink if you don't do that. Now, some basic things that, you know, I can look at and tell you are excellent for general preparedness and daily homesteading is, a horse is a great source of high-quality manure, so uh, you've got that going for you. So if you're doing any kind of cultivating and growing, you've got that. You know, back in the day, the horse was, uh, you know, as much a tractor as a tractor is today. A farmer might use a horse for plowing or he might use oxen for plowing, but a lot of farmers used horses for plowing. Uh, they used horses to move things, that, you know, but, but I'm not really an expert on this, so I'm going to throw it out there. If you are really a horse hand, I mean, you're a guy that knows horses and you know how to use horses in a, in a real homestead slash emergency use manner. And you know about their care and, and all of this different stuff. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on guests. There's a form there. Fill that out and we'll get you in on a time slot and get you on the show for an interview. I think it would make a fabulous interview. I just can't talk a lot about it because it's not something that I have sufficient practical experience about that I feel comfortable advising you about. Again, I do say that there's a lot of resource need on the input side. Now, if you have 100 acres and a bunch of pasture and you can get a lot of what the horses need just from that, I think that helps. But there's things like shoeing and you need the services of a blacksmith and you need a good equine vet and all of that stuff. You have to have a contingency plan. Whenever you add a living creature to your household, even if it's a working living creature, that living creature has needs, and those input needs need to be accounted for in an emergency. That's the best I can do for you right now. I will tell you this. I talked to a local sheriff's department uh, sheriff here, deputy sheriff, and I asked him about sheriff's reserve, and one thing he told me, and I didn't go into de- him with him deeper than this, is right now they would really love to have some sheriff's reserve officers that have a horse. So I think there's maybe some rural places when trees are down and stuff like that where a horse can get and people can't. So that's that's a good indicator right there that it's a, it's a good subject to get into. Again, I'm throwing it out to guests, and I'll, I'll say right now, if you have any topic you'd like to come on the show as a guest for, the best way to do that, go to the site. You'll see guests right in the top navigation menu. Click on that. There's a form there. Please fill it out completely. Please don't put in there, you know, what do you, what subject you want to discuss, anything you want. That will not, I won't even bother. I'm sorry, I can't. i got too many people wanting to come on the show now. If you're going to come on the show as a guest, you need to tell me what you want to discuss. Give me three setup questions. That will help me shape the rest of the interview and do a great job for you when you're on the air and make it comfortable for you. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Bobo on the forums again. Um, actually, I was calling today to ask you uh, this debt ceiling thing that's coming around in August 2nd. I just can't help but think to myself, you know, is this something where I should just ignore it? Because, you know, the politicians are always looking for ways to, 
you know, look better than their counterparts and, and just know that more than likely probably before August 2nd they're going to do something that keeps the nation from you know, going in general calamity. Or is that normal bias talking in the sense that, you know, maybe the debt ceiling doesn't get raised and, and uh, somebody doesn't get paid and that has negative effects on the, on the economy. I, just, I can't help but look at situations like Greece where, you know, people are rioting in the streets which would be something to think about if uh, if your preps aren't short up. Anyway, long story short, just want to hear your thoughts on it. Again, love the show, and uh, keep us in good work. Well, as you can tell, I'm, I'm operating here about three weeks back like I normally do on the calls, and I can say that you know throughout this entire crisis, I talked about it very little because it wasn't a real crisis, and I told you, turn the TV off and stop paying attention to the political theater, that the ass clowns would come to an amazing deal right at the end, Neither side would get what they really want, and basically we would get the shaft. And that's what happened. And I'll probably talk about this more on Monday, so I won't go too deep into it right now. Because I want to talk about the actual quote-unquote deal that they got that's supposed to be good for everybody and how it doesn't really do a damn thing to change anything. Um, I won't talk about the Tea Party Caucus right now because there's a question later that brings in that, that component. What I will tell you is this. Um, what you just witnessed was complete nonsense, but it showed us the real problem and the problem no one wants to talk about. The problem is not, it absolutely is not a problem that at some point our government might decide we're not going to borrow any more money or we're not going to buy any borrow any more money unless we cut spending. Um, here's the thing, and this is the sacred cow nobody wants to touch. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are bankrupting the country. Okay, I'll say it again. They are bankrupting the country. And you can say whatever you want about money put aside and how they take it out, and you're right about that. But here's the fundamental reality. Today, there's two working people, or maybe it's three. It's like two and a half or three working people for every one person on Social Security. And it takes our money, our taxes, to pay for that one person who exists. That number used to be way different, way different in the past. Not too long ago, it was 15 to 1. Right. Um, going forward, if things stay the way they are, it'll be a one-to-one relationship. One working person will have to fund one person's retirement. Right now, it's literally the case, you know, like when you go on um, TV, you're watching TV, and they bring this commercial on, and they say, look at little Matumbo starving in Africa. One person like you with $20 a month can make a difference. And if you sign up for Feed the Children or whatever, they send you letters from your little child, and they send you pictures of him going to school and getting his new shoes and all that. And it's a noble cause. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, you know how that works? Right now, they literally could match every three Americans to the one old person they're supporting and send you a picture of your old person. Now, that's not how the system's supposed to work. Yes, the government abused the system. Yes, they made it worse. But the system itself cannot work. It's a Ponzi scheme because of inflation. It just can't. So these major entitlement programs need reform, and none of that happened. The danger is not when we decide to fix it and when we decide to curb the, the, the borrowing and, and cut back and some people don't get paid everything that they think they're going to get. That's not a disaster. That's We should see that coming, and if you don't, you're a dumbass. right? And there's never going to come a day when they're not going to pay the people that are already on the dole, so to speak, with it. I don't mean that negatively. I know if you are 70 years old and drawing Social Security, it was promised to you, you should get it, what have you. Um, what they're going to do is they'll have to cut back growth of the entitlement, which means no more uh, automatic raises for inflation. They'll have to do some other things, and they'll have to eventually wean people off it. That's not the problem. The problem exposed by this is that, okay, the government can't function without borrowing. So what happens when it's not that we don't want to borrow, but there's not enough money to be loaned to us to keep this stupid curve of, of you know, runaway curve of spending going? 
And that day must come. So the day that all the ass clowns are arguing with each other about whether we borrow, how much we bother, borrow, and what we cut, that's not a problem. The day the rest of the world says, yeah, you know, we've had enough of this. We're not lending you anymore. That's when we have a problem. And that day eventually will come, even if it comes at the point where the, the, the other people would be willing to loan us money. But if you look at our growth of our debt and the curve to it, we're going to get to a point where there isn't going to be anybody out there to do it. We're going to out-borrow the bank. That's the real problem here. That's why you stay prepared. But whenever you see all the ass clowns standing up making speeches, avert your eyes and go on to something else. Because it's always, it's always bullshit. Might I remind you of the swine flu from a few years ago. This was no different. This was everybody getting a chance to grandstand. The only people that really meant what they said and tried to do what they said were the Tea Party Caucus. I'm not putting them on a pedestal. I'm just stating a fact. I'll talk more about that later. Um, now let's go ahead and take that next call. Hey, Jack. This is Arn in Sarasota again. I just finished making omelets for the family for dinner, and I thought I'd pass on uh, a little uh, combination that our family likes. Uh, fresh basil and goat cheese go well together, especially in an omelet. Um, I know you're big on herbs, and and I'm uh, trying to get bigger on them and get my family into them, and goat cheese and basil seem to make a really natural fit. Thanks for all you do. Talk to you later. Bye. All I can say is yum, and damn it, why didn't I eat breakfast this morning? I got out of the house a little bit late. I got an interview scheduled at noon, so I didn't eat any uh, breakfast. But actually, I've been eating a lot of exactly what you just said there. I, I don't know exactly what goat cheese you're using. Uh, my favorite way to do what you just said is with feta cheese. And feta is a Greek cheese. It's kind of crumbly. And it was traditionally made with goat's milk. Most of it is actually now made with, with uh, you know cattle milk, uh, dairy milk. Um, but uh, either way, it's great. And here I'll give you a couple modifications, guys. If you want to see, this is the thing: people grow basil, and they realize once they start growing it how easy it is to grow like mountains of basil. And you can only dry so much for dried use, and then the winter's going to come and kill it. So, what do you do with it while it's here? And this is a great when you get a big handful of basil leaves. And I don't mean you know people that cut up one little leaf and all. Basil's good stuff, folks. I mean, uh, I think we've gotten to a point in America where we use these little you know. Pinches of herbs and crap you can't even taste. It. Get a big old handful, slice it up like you're slicing up uh, any kind of a green to go in there. If you have some and it's hard to come by this year unless you buy it because it's this time of year because it's too hot. But spinach and basil with feta cheese and an omelet, it is just freaking dynamite. Um, get your skillet hot with your with your oil or your butter and throw your your basil and your uh, your spinach in there just for a, a couple seconds to wilt it a little bit, and then throw your eggs in and, and just cook it together. Add your feta cheese at the end. And the big thing with eggs and cheese, folks, you use less cheese uh, and get less of the fat content and just you know, get more flavor. Don't melt the cheese all the way into your eggs. Make your eggs and put the cheese on the top at the end. Let it melt on top of them. You can use less cheese that way and you know take, take, maybe take an X off your XLs. Um, some other things that are really good in there. Uh, again, I mentioned spinach, and you go, well, what about you know spinach this time of year is hard to come by, but you know, if you want to do this all from the backyard, dehydrate your spinach. You should have probably more spinach than you can eat if you grow spinach through the, the late fall. If you can get it through to the winter, depending on where you are, in early spring, dehydrated spinach flakes, a little bit of water, let it rehydrate, and you know if you get the ratio right, there's barely any water left by the time the spinach rehydrates. You drop that in your eggs, leave that extra water in there, that flavor goes all through uh, the omelet, a little bit of fresh sliced tomato in that same omelet, dynamite. Um, take two slices of bacon, 
cut them up into pieces about you know half inch square and uh, saute those until they're just about crispy. Then throw your uh, your your basil and or your spinach right into your baking grease. Wilt it just a little bit. In goes the eggs. Mix that up. Absolutely freaking fabulous. So there's a lot of variations on that, but a basil feta egg based omelet, and then grow out from there into whatever you want. Fabulous way to use an easy to grow herb. And I think if you're growing basil this year with all this heat, you're finding out that it doesn't care about the heat as long as it gets enough water. And it doesn't. It's not a water pig. I mean, I've got basil plants in my bag garden in front of my uh, tomato plants that are about three feet high, and they were planted from seed five weeks ago. So it's a great herb. We got another herb coming up in a bit, and uh, hopefully this will get you guys, you know, thinking about ways to use the herbs in your garden uh, in creative ways. Because generally, basil gets used in like you know, I talk about doing um, uh, bruschetta and things like that, or using Italian cooking. But this is another great way to use basil. Uh, before we get into anything else about herbs or any other interesting stuff, though, I promised you all from a tinfoil hatter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna warn you. I almost didn't put this guy on, not because of his claims, because he's kind of boring. I mean, he really is. He's just... But I'm going to put him on. I want you to endure him with me. And I want you to understand that this is the kind of stuff that I hear all the time. And then I'm going to respond to his claim. And I want you to pay very close attention when he talks about Albuquerque, New Mexico, to the number that he uses in his claim. And then I'm going to read to you the actual number. Uh, let's go ahead and hear from Mr. Tinfoil Hatter. I was listening to podcast from I think is about two weeks ago now and you said you were talking to your wife about uh, expanding the veterans um, discount to law enforcement officers and before you go and say that they hang their ass out online why don't you research I grew up in Wichita Kansas why don't you research their murder record or here where I live now Albuquerque New Mexico where they kill about 70 to 80 people a month. I know this will probably put me in the tinfoil hat brigade, but uh, conspiracies only happen when there's a lack of evidence in your definition of conspiracies. I just want you to realize there are a lot of murderous men out there in goofy government-issued costumes. Thanks, Jack. I doubt this will get on the air, but, um, you know... Even government worshippers can be good guys sometimes. Okay, first of all, if you think that was painful to listen to, I want you to know something. I actually made this caller sound a lot better than he sounded. I took a lot of ums uh, and long pauses out. I didn't take out any of his words or anything that he said that would be important. I took out uhs, ums, and uh and long pauses. That was it. Without that, this call lasted about another 25 seconds. And it would be 25 seconds that I took the time to edit out because I think members of the audience would have been ready to pull their concealed carry piece, put it to their temple, and blow their brains out trying to listen to this guy. But let me respond to something. Did you hear the number that I told you to pay attention to? 70 to 80 people a month. 70 to 80 people a month are being killed by the Albuquerque Police Department. Now, that sounds very alarming to me. And if the Albuquerque Police Department is killing people, especially 7 to 80 the month, I'd expect we'd hear about it. But I damn sure want to know about it. I damn sure want to shine a light on a bunch of murderous ass-clown cops that need to go. So I looked it up and see, is there a problem with too many uh, officer-involved shootings in the city of Albuquerque? There's something there, but it ain't 7 to 80 a month. Let me read it to you. This is from... Um, last year, 
uh, October 2010. So unless they've started like you know shooting people at a much higher rate, we can assume this is the kind of thing that's going on and what's being protested. Protested, but this is on krqe.com, which is a local affiliate for Albuquerque.、Uh, and here's the headline: Group protesting police shootings. ADP officers involved in 12 shootings this year. Albuquerque community activists hope to bring awareness to a change the police department they believe is too violent. The leaders of Cop Watch,、uh, Vincios United, and Albuquerque Answer Coalition—those sound like great guys—said、uh, this year's 12 shootings involved Albuquerque Police Department officers is too much and might constitute police brutality. They plan to hold a rally outside the headquarters of Fourth Street Roma Avenue Northwest on Friday, 3:30 p.m. And it's part of a nationwide awareness campaign called National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality. They said they want to send a message to police department, community leaders, and citizens of Albuquerque. "Quote: There are some ADP folks who aren't necessarily safe, and who the community is scared of, and it needs to change," said Derek Minobloom, who heads up Cop Watch, a group that videotapes officers at work. By the way, I like the work Cop Watch is doing. I'm actually a supporter of Cop Watch. Traditionally, if someone's got a camera and there's five people watching, they're going to act a little differently. The community activists. That want to see more crisis intervention training among Albuquerque police officers say the 40 hours cadets now receive in the academy is not enough, and that more non-lethal training with beanbags and tasers is needed. Now these are the same people though that will have a heart attack if they tase some doped-up guy and he has a heart attack. Right? They'll flip out. Right? Let's be fair though. Minnow Bloom. Who recently moved to Albuquerque from the East Coast said he's seen police brutality in other communities. I believe that too. News 13 asked him if it's fair to compare Albuquerque's police with other departments across the country. "Quote: From my perspective, NYPD and Philly police—they might also be a violent police force, but they have CIT training, more of it, and de-escalation skills." He said. Tony Padilla runs the Albuquerque chapter of the Answer Coalition. News 13 talked to him before the latest ADP officer-involved shooting, which took place in Tutankhamri. Uh, but involved in Albuquerque, but involved in Albuquerque police officer. Anytime you have quote, anytime you have eleven police shootings in a year, in less than a year, in nine months, in fact, I would say it's a bit excessive. Padilla said, ADP Chief Ray Schultz said he has no plans to address the rally Friday. He said he respects the activists' right to protest, but questions their tactics. Quote, I think they're trying to play on people's emotions. End quote. Schultz said he said he wants the community to keep in mind that officers have to make split-second decisions about how they're going to defend themselves. And Schultz says the gun. Are not always a weapon of choice. Last year in 2009, Albuquerque Police Department used a taser in 190 applications. He said the activists have invited families of 12 people shot by ADP this year to attend hour-long rallies. Some are expected to attend. Later that evening, the group will walk down Central Avenue with their signs. Then Cop Watch will hit the streets with their video cameras in hand. Okay, so there's the real story, and there's both sides of the real story. But the number. For last year, anyway, was 12. Do I think 12 is too many? I don't know. Probably, I would bet you that there's probably two or three of these shootings where an officer may have been too keyed up and didn't respond properly. But I also bet you that the vast majority of them were probably from armed suspects. And if you're stupid and you pull a weapon on a police officer and he shoots you, you are rightfully going to your day of rest. That's the way that it works. We don't pull weapons on police officers. As for the claim that I'm a government worshipper, you are a moron. I am a libertarian. I have done more to enlighten people to ways to be free of government oppression. I have fought this at every level. Every time a report of a clearly abusive officer comes out that's credible, I put it either on the show and/or put it out on Facebook and Twitter, and I make the audience aware of it. 
Folks, I put this man on the air today so you can hear the type of crap that I hear multiple times a week. You wouldn't believe the emails I get like this. There are people out there, that, you know what, you're clearly delusional. Um, you take a reality and then you spin it into a reality that doesn't, you know, a, a false reality doesn't even really bear any resemblance to what's really going on. We have a, a police department in Albuquerque that clearly, to me, seems as though there's something wrong there. And that more eyes need to be focused on it. But let's say that you were the one telling the story to people. And instead of telling it to somebody rational like me that actually looks at this stuff and says sometimes cops abuse their authority, sometimes an entire, entire department is rotten, and we need to look at it, you tell it to the average person on the street. Hey, kill 70 to 80 people a year or a month. That's what you say. 70 to 80 people a month. And this person goes and looks it up and says, it was 12 a year. That seems bad, but this guy has no credibility. He's an idiot. This is what happens with tinfoil hat loons. You guys ruin the credibility of real problems. You guys destroy the credibility of real problems. This is why we have to be sane, rational people. That's not about government worship. You have to be an ass clown to think that I, of all people, worship the government. You're an idiot if you believe that. I'm sorry. I hate to make this personal, but when you tell me I worship government, you're making it personal. And I, it's not just for this call. It's for anybody that feels that way. Uh, the fact that we have good, solid law enforcement officers out there is a fact. The fact that the majority of them are good, solid people is a fact. The, the fact that you know if one in ten are complete ass clowns or violent or damaging or dangerous, they can ruin the reputation of everybody else is a fact. And I do think cops need to do a better job of not backing their butt all the time, and when somebody's doing something clearly stupid, to point it out and be the first to police their own. You know, every officer should be part of internal affairs is the way that I feel. You really should. And I expect police officers to stand up with that. Now, on the discount, ugh, let me put it to you this way. If there's a law enforcement officer that listens to this show on a daily basis, believes in what we talk about enough that they would financially support this show, I highly doubt they're like that ass clown from Canton, Ohio, that, that verbally abused a guy and threatened to shoot him, that I put out on the air, that I put out on Facebook, that I put out on Twitter, that I brought awareness to. I highly doubt that guy listens to TSP and would financially support the show. I believe if you listen to this show, you share common ideals, and you're probably one of the good guys. So there you go, folks. That's a look into the world that Jack Spierko deals with on a daily basis from the Tinfoil Hat Brigade. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from uh, St. Louis. I got a, the area that I live in has a dump site for yard waste, and uh, I was there dumping off some excess grass and noticed that they had mulch there and asked the guy if I could take some of the mulch. And his concern is that the, uh, that it would attract termites to my property and just wanted to warn me. Also, when I, uh, when I built my raised garden beds, the, the guy at Lowe's, uh, he also concerned when I wanted to just use the standard wood and said that I should use something that was treated. Um, should I be concerned about termites as far as, uh, uh, putting raised garden beds up or bringing mulch onto my property that's untreated? Uh, basically, uh, 
That's all I got, and uh, thanks a lot for watching. This is one of those situations where the people giving you advice are not right, and they're not wrong either. Um, if you build a really nice raised bed and you fill it up with organic uh, matter and compost and all kinds of good stuff, and you mulch it heavily with a fibrous woody material, and it's uh, it's this nice bastion of moisture and wood, uh, you probably will attract some termites eventually into some or, or multiple of your beds. Uh, for this purpose, I would not ever build a raised bed and have it maybe abut my proper my my uh, my house because then if you get them into the foundation of your house, you've got a problem. Let me explain something to you. There are term if there are termites in your area, there are termites in your area, and they are there anyway. Uh, and if you don't give them a place to live, they'll find another place to live. Um, I'm not saying we should fall in love with the termite and cultivate the termite uh, for eternal happiness, but what I'm telling you is this. When termites get into a raised bed, uh, they have all this great woody material there to work with, and they generally don't even mess with the sideboards, even if they're not treated. I have never had termites get into a raised bed and actually get into uh, the wood itself. The wood's in good repair. They generally go in, into the wood as it begins to really dry out and decay and get easy for them to do. So I just don't actually have a big problem with them doing that. In your garden, they're a beneficial uh, they make little tunnels, and the water can penetrate better, and uh, eventually they leave, and they leave behind all these little tunnels and pathways for the water. You know, we just talked about this with the Zai farmer, uh, Yakoba, out in uh, the Sahal of, uh, of Africa with uh, the Zai's, and then the termites come into the Zai's, and then they, they get better penetration of the water, and everything actually works better. So it's not that, you know, he's wrong, or the guy from Lowe's is wrong, or the guy from Home Depot is wrong, that having raised beds will attract termites. It might. It, it may and it may not. I've had termites in raised beds, and I've had raised beds go for years with no termite activity. I've done big, giant pots down by my fence, and the termites ended up in the pots. Uh, they caused no harm to what I was growing. They caused no harm to my fence. They caused no harm to anything. Um, you do not want them around your home, though. So I've seen people where they basically take rocks and they build a raised bed, and or wood or whatever, and the back of the raised bed is the wall of the house itself, and then you have you know a foot of this this beautiful warm moist organic material with all this woody material, and that attracts termites, and then they tunnel down there, and if they get into the foundation of the home, they'll go up, and then they'll find the stick foundation of your home, and then you've got a problem. Otherwise, when you have termites in your garden, be happy; they don't hurt anything, they probably won't even mess with the sideboards of your raised beds. And I would not use treated wood to avoid termites. If the termites eventually get into the raised bed, I would simply go out and get enough wood to replace it and, and replace it. I mean, that's, that, that's how I would handle that. And you're probably looking at a 5 to 10 year cycle with wood for raised beds anyway if you're going to use untreated wood, which I think is the way to go. You can also look at it this way. As you're building raised beds, the biggest reason to contain them is because they're not yet established. And the longer you run them and the more established they become, the less you actually need. And you can just have these freestanding mounds. So by the time you get to a point where your wood's really needing to be replaced, you don't necessarily have to replace it unless you just like the raised bed look. Or in my case, the reason I do it is because my dogs have learned to respect the wood and they don't respect the hill. 
So to keep my dogs out, I stick with that framing. But if you don't have those issues, either the aesthetic desire or uh, you know animal entry and, and, and damage to the, your, your garden, um, you can just, at that point, take them away and let them go into a more traditional mound shape, which will help out in a lot of ways. There's a lot of advantages to that, by the way. If you do raised beds that are more like a, a, a hill and they've got more angle to them instead of the straight sidewall, the earth compacts a great deal less. That's part of... Seb Holzer's Hugo culture beds that are five feet, five and a half feet tall is they have really steep angles. And that really steep angle and they come up, you know, they're really wide at the bottom, they come up very narrow at the top. The more you do of that, the less compaction of soil you get. So termites aren't a problem and if they do get into the sidewalls of the raised bed eventually, you can always replace that or remove it. But don't sweat the termite unless the termite is approaching the foundation of your home. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Matt from the Hoosier State once again. Uh, a little comment, observation. Um, uh, wondering if you come up with the same perspective or not. Uh, the, uh, the, the actions of the President and our Congress in this recent uh, debt limit negotiation seems to be in a guided role to separate or split the uh, Republican Party. Uh, allowing uh, President Obama to be elected for a second term. And here's, here's my point. Looking at uh, uh, McCain, McCain's comments, um, and knowing that McCain's comments are in direct conflict with the current Republican base, as well as the Tea Party, if uh, people start following McCain and uh, leaving the, uh, the the wishes of the base in that not extending the debt limit without massive cuts in spending. Uh, if, if people start following McCain uh, in, in his comments and agreeing with the, Demo- with the, with the Democrats and liberals, uh, it will end up causing a, uh, a uh, the, the, the Tea Party to rightfully say, screw this, we're not going to, it doesn't matter, Tea Party, whoever, people that, people that believe in this debt limit, uh, uh, as well as spending cuts, uh, they're going to cause them to look for a separate party and create a separate party, which, you know, whether, I don't know that the merits need to be argued of a separate party, but uh, the effect at this point of a separate party will, will be drastic and detrimental, and I believe that that is his goal. Uh, what are your thoughts? Talk to you later. Well, I understand as I answer your question, I say this with all due respect and an appreciation for who you are as a human being and an American, but I think like the majority of good Americans that believe that by being involved in the political processes of today, you've been deluded to believing there actually is a difference between the two parties in the first place. Uh, you've, you've been led to believe this through uh, the pet issues that are used to socially divide us, such as carbon taxation and, and uh, gun ownership and gay marriage and all the other hot-button issues that are really a bunch of political theater to create the illusion for you that there's really a solid difference between the mainstream Republican and the mainstream Democrat. And there really isn't. Now, as far as McCain, McCain's an ass clown. McCain is not a Republican. McCain is a very, uh, I would say, if you want to look at traditional, if 
you want me to take out my jaded view of the political system today and give a classic political response to what McCain is, McCain is an extremely uh, extreme end of the conservative side of the Democratic Party who ran as a Republican because it was the most expedient way to get his ass elected at the time when he entered politics. And once he made that choice, he stayed with that choice. But if you look at McCain's track record, it's far more liberal in the classic sense than conservative in the classic sense. And I mean the modern classic sense, not a classical liberal who I don't know where those guys went. Right, the classic liberal was the one that says, "I don't agree with you say what you say, but I'll defend to your death the right to say it." Those guys are long gone, right? But the classic definition of a modern liberal, uh, McCain is to the conservative end of that liberal spectrum. The real answer here is that what you actually had happen here was a caucus of about thirty people blamed for the disagreement. Uh, the Tea Party caucus only numbers about thirty. The House of Representatives numbers 540-odd people. Uh, to get something through the House, you need only a simple majority. So all you heard was a Tea Party. It's holding the, the nation hostage, blah, 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 blah. And what you actually have were 30 people. They don't give a shit if they get reelected. They don't care. They were sent there to do something, and damn well they were going to do it. And you know what? They, they were used as a scapegoat while both sides pretended to disagree So they could come to the conclusion they were already going to come to, and this has nothing to do with whether or not Barack Obama gets reelected. This has to do with when they spin it, who does a better job of spinning it? Both sides can come away claiming victory. Both sides knew that going in. This is not about splitting the Republican Party. Maybe that needs to happen, though. And all of the people that go, oh, my God, what if they do it? Nothing will change. Look, go back. 50 years, look at every president, every president with every type of Congress underneath them, whether we had Democrat in the White House, Republican in, in Congress, uh, Republican in Congress, Democrats in the White House, Republican in the Congress, Republican in the White House, Democrat in the Congress, Democrat in the White House. Every single one spent more money and grew the size and scope of government. The belief that the current political system in its current form is any use to us at all other than for its basic functionality and to give people some ability to make some change is delusional. It's delusional. The debt ceiling was always going to be raised. The debt ceiling always will be raised until such time as there is not enough money coming in to allow us to borrow more money to fund our idiocy. The financial system of the United States of America, a fractional reserve banking system, requires debt for the creation of money. In our financial system, when debt is repaid, the currency contracts. That is deflation, the opposite of inflation. If you pay debt off long enough, you create a currency shortage and the relative currency strength against the existing accepted value of money and the new strength of money where people don't adjust to it in time. This is a game. It is nonsense. It is controlled by a private banking institution in conjunction with the International Monetary Fund. 
and it has nothing to do with anything bearing reality to the way that you're hearing it discussed. It's not about splitting one party over the other. It's about splitting the nation as many times and bifurcating as many times and dividing as many times and making you hate each other so you'll fight with each other while they all sit up there and get fat and drunk on our backs. All of them. And the new people that came in, there's a few of them that seem like really good guys. Eventually, if the system is not changed, if more of them don't get in there, they will be co-opted or forced out. And that's the reality. You heard it here. And everything else you're hearing about this is absolute, 100% total bullshit. And that's all I have to say on that subject for a long time to come. But whenever it, whenever you hear it, please remember what I've said today. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Steve in Massachusetts. I am wondering, I'm thinking of getting a wood heat stove for my house, and I'm wondering if I should spend up and get a wood cook stove for my house. Uh, I have uh, natural gas forced air heat, and I have a, chim- a fireplace, uh, which is very inefficient and, and overall probably makes the place colder. And I have no wood source, um, uh, but wood would be a very good choice. So the obvious thing for me to do would be to get a wood heat stove, um, but I've, I've, I've just become aware that there are also wood cook stoves out there. Um, the trade-offs are is that I would use the heat stove all the time, and it would be very efficient for heating. If I got a wood cook stove, I could still use it for heating, but it would be much more expensive and less efficient for heating. There's far fewer models of wood cook stoves. They cost much more. And the ones that I've seen tend to look ugly, and this would be right in the middle of my house. Um, Although I'd use the heat option all the time, and it would be a little less efficient in a cook stove, I would have the option for very rarely, and in the event of some sort of uh, a real catastrophe, to start using the cook stove part of it. Um, uh, And I'm wondering if it's worth it. You can actually use a wood heat stove for cooking, especially if it has a flat surface. So maybe uh, you go with the cheaper, nicer-looking models that are more efficient for heat purposes and that you can use all the time for heat purposes uh, and uh, just use it even though it has no special cooking um, features. Use it for cooking in the event of an emergency and don't spend up on a wood cook stove. So thanks very much, Jack. Bye-bye. Sounds to me like you already know the answer. Wood cook stove is too big for your property. It's going to take up too much space, cost too much money, and be utilized too too infrequently for it to make sense for your purchase. So that leaves you with a wood heat stove or another option. One thing I think you should seriously consider here that might solve a lot of your issues, uh, especially with your fireplace, is a fireplace insert that basically kind of sort of makes your fireplace into a wood heat stove. They look great. They improve the efficiency of your fireplace by about 80%. They take up very little space. They only come out from the fireplace onto the hearth a few inches. Uh, so you don't have to give up any space. And everything that you need as far as the chimney is already there. Generally, your installer will come in and put a sleeve in your chimney that's, that's slightly smaller in diameter uh, than the existing chimney because that helps to improve the efficiency. You need less heat vented out because you're putting more 
heat into the home. Uh, this also helps if you have an old chimney because you're not, you know, if there's problems with it or anything like that, uh, by putting in this new flue, uh, the, 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 any kind of cracks or imperfections there are no longer that big a deal because it's actually going into a different pipe. So that might be the best option. They're not expensive. They don't cost really anything more than a good quality wood heat stove, and they don't take up any additional space, which seems to be a concern for you. If you want a way to cook with wood when there's an emergency, get a grill. Get a charcoal, good quality charcoal grill. Keep it covered so it doesn't get rusted out. Use it often in the summertime and in the fall and the spring to make beautiful food for your family to eat uh, with a lot more fa flavor than you get from a propane grill. And then you'll know how to use it. And if you need to cook with wood, go outside, throw some wood in your grill, fire it up, and cook your brains out. You can also get a couple little uh, mini camp stoves for gas that run on uh, propane or butane. Uh, you can get a little uh, wood stove like the Emberlit stove that we just put into the gear shop. There's all kinds of ways to create when it's only in emergency is a way to cook with wood and or charcoal or anything else that you can burn. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to take up space you don't really want to give up uh, and do all of these things to put a wood cook stove in your home. If you have the space, you think they're cool and you like them and you want one, uh, I wouldn't fault you at all for it. But I'll tell you that if, if you're in a situation where you don't think you're going to actually use it for cooking much, it doesn't really make a lot of sense and there's better ways to do things. If you got a wood heat stove, All right, and you wanted to cook with wood and you didn't do the fireplace insert, then you could use your fireplace for cooking. And there's even all kinds of books on cooking on a fireplace hearth, and there's accessories that allow you to put things into a fireplace depending on its size or what have you. Not a very efficient heating method, but it's a pretty good method of cooking. It used to be done all over colonial America. The original purpose of a fireplace hearth, you know, the part that comes out on the bottom that's this stone or brick or whatever, actually wasn't so that one stray amber might not land on your carpet and set it on fire and burn the house down. And most people had a dirt floor anyway. It was actually people, when, the, when they got a good bed of coals, would use that little shovel thing that we used to take ash out. Right? They would shovel some hot coals right onto the, the, the stone hearth, and they would cook on them. So there's, there's, there's something there if you wanted to do that as well, depending on the size and structure. A lot of modern hearths really aren't suited for this. You have to make that call for yourself, and they kind of get sooted up and stuff. So, But this is how things were done before we came up with all this cool modern technology. So personally, I would look at either your heat stove, and I would definitely consider fireplace inserts. And in your situation, based on everything I just heard you say, I wouldn't even consider a wood cook stove. Uh, if you have one or you want one, I'm going to put them down. I'm just saying this guy doesn't sound like he needs one. Uh, and personally, it's not what I would take either. I don't like the space you give up really for either one of them because they're freestanding and, and kind of exposed. That does improve their heat give off, and they do give off a lot of heat. We had a coal cook stove uh, when I was a young boy in Pennsylvania, my grandmother's place, and it was kind of cool. We also had a gas stove sitting right next to it, so we had both. Um, but I, I just don't think it probably makes sense for you. That's what I would do, and I'd really consider the fireplace inserts. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, Nathan from Holland, Texas. Uh, one herb I've never heard you talk about is catnip. Um, it's my favorite one. I'm, I've never never uh, used an herb that I get so much of an effect off of, but I use it to make tea, catnip tea, and It really helps for if I drink it before I go to bed. I wake up really refreshed, like I've gotten a great night's sleep. And uh, every time I drink it, I always, you know, those, those times when you have those dreams you can remember all day, a lot of times you forget dreams. But um, like I have real vivid dreams that I can remember. And 
I just uh, feel like I've gotten a great night's rest, and even if it, even if I lay down for a short time, but uh, I don't know exactly why this is. I mean, maybe you can uh, ask one of your herbalists, but uh, it's just it's one of the best herbs I use, and I love it a lot. I just wanted to uh, let you know about it. Talk to you later. Well, because of this call, I did a little research into catnip, and wow, what a, what a swing and a miss by Jack to not be bringing this herb up in the past. Catnip is a member of the mint family, and I've always seen it kind of doing the same thing that any kind of mint does because the actions that it has on cats are not present in people. There's no, you're not going to get high on catnip. You're not going to have hallucinations on catnip, and despite the caller's description of vivid dreams. Catnip is a sedative, and it's it's a fairly good, mild herbal sedative. And the reason you're having the, the the vivid dreams is probably and remembering them is because you're sleeping soundly and you're spending a long time in REM sleep, which is the recharging sleep, uh, rapid eye movement sleep, the deep sleep that we need to recharge our batteries. So it's probably not that the catnip is giving you the dreams or even letting you remember them. It's simply making you relaxed enough due to whatever's going on in your life. It's supplementing that, allowing that deep REM cycle sleep. And because you awaken from REM, instead of going in and out of REM constantly, uh, you're more likely to remember your dreams. You're probably, by the way, because uh, this is some area I've done some research into, uh, remembering maybe one or two of, of dozens, if not uh, multiple dozens of dreams uh, that you've had during the night. The dream that you think lasted uh, an hour uh, and seemed like an hour to you generally lasts only a few moments uh, because the mind is in a timeless state. It's a pretty cool thing to look at. Uh, but what about catnip tea benefits? Let me give you some of the benefits. I mean, I, I almost can do a show on this herb uh, by itself uh, from what I've learned about it. It's an herbal sedative, and the main benefit of catnip tea is a calming action. It's able to relax you. It'll help you relieve stress. It'll soothe your nerves, calm your anxiety without sedating. Uh, like most herbal teas, tea made with catnip is caffeine-free. The tea may be used as a treatment for insomnia since it helps you to bring a restful sleep. Uh, by relaxing the mind, it's a it is nepetal acetone. That's the the active substance in there, nepetal acetone, uh, the substance produced by catnip that causes it to act as a sedative and produces a soothing action against migraines and headaches. If you're going through nicotine or drug withdrawal, catnip herbal tea is a great help to calm down and soothe the stress that you may suffer during this period or even after you have undergone long periods of treatment with medical prescription medicine. For digestive disorders, catnip tea will leave stomach complaints. It's a natural antacid and can help you reduce acid reflux, thus soothing, soothing indigestion. And any mint family uh, member is going to help with that as well. The tea can help with colic, diarrhea, cramps, and flatulence. Good to know. It is an antispasmatic, so it may help soothe your stomach muscles and help you to cure stomach ulcers. With your digestive system back on track, this tea will stimulate your appetite. Have a cup to help digestion if you go a bit overboard during your next big family meal. Uh, if you have colds, flus, and fevers, it's also a great natural sedative, and catnip is antibacterial, which means it can be a great tea to take when you have a cold or allergy set in, so it has an antibacterial effect, which most herbs, by the way, do have both antibacterial and antiviral uh, aspects to them. It also helps to bring down fevers through sweating and also acts as a decongestant, loosens phlegm, and soothes respiratory distress. Um, among other things, it's a great relaxant for asthma if you suffer from that or sinusitis. Um, it's also good for soothing menstrual clamps and helping with PMS ladies. Uh, at the same time, it's, 
it's really good to help increase menstrual flow and stimulate the uterus. So for a lot of the female issues out there that men don't generally enjoy discussing, it can be helpful. It's a great aid after an intense workout. It may relax your muscles. So if you're really keyed up after a hard physical event, it's a good way to come down. It can also help to ease pain from things like bladder inflammation. Uh, probably because it has some diuretic action as well, I would imagine. Uh, it acts as a detoxifier, eliminates toxins in your body. It's antifungal, antibiotic, and it has astringent properties, which remember that helps to tighten and contract tissues. Remember from the herbal action series that I did. It protects your body against viruses and bacteria. It may help with the treatment of measles and chickenpox. Should we ever end up with an epidemic of those during a time with poor medical response? It has some external uses and some other things. I got this from uh, a, a, a site that uh, I think is uh, is pretty cool. It looks like it's a made-for-AdSense site, really, so they got some AdSense ads on them. But uh, it's really intensive, and there's a bunch more about catnip. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes. You may want to check it out. Uh, so catnip, I apologize, folks, that I didn't know how awesome this individual herb was. Here's the good news. is a mint. It spreads like wildfire. It's easy to grow. It's perennial, and it's really hardy. So it's something that if you want to add a little stand of catnip to what you're doing in the backyard, you can do it, and, hey, you'll make your kitty happy, too. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jason in Texas. I'm a new listener, and... Uh I've only listened to about a dozen or so podcasts over the last week, and, man, I'm amazed. You do a great job. Um, over 700 shows, that's an amazing accomplishment, and kudos to you, sir. My hat, uh, I tip my hat to you. Um, I had two topics I wanted to bring up today. The first was the Marjorie Wildcraft interview. I, Man, I appreciate uh, what she's doing and the message uh, she's uh, teaching. Uh, more people need to follow that message. I had one area of concern. Uh, that would be her use of rabbit as a source of protein. I've heard the story. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but there was a family that uh, lived off rabbits uh, as its source of protein, and they did that over the winter and ended up having to be hospitalized. And it was determined that the rabbits were uh, too lean a source of protein, and that caused some illness that put them in a hospital. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I heard, and I was wondering if you or maybe Marjorie had heard that before, and, uh, you know, is there any truth to that? Uh, and, you know, if you could find out and share with the audience, I'd uh, also appreciate that. Uh, second thing I want to do is plug my YouTube channel. It's uh, youtube.com slash organictexas, and on that channel i got over 700 videos and over 1,000 subscribers, and those videos cover everything from um, foraging to uh, growing your own food and how to how to garden organically. And I have uh, guests on there such as uh, Howard Garrett, Bob Webster, Bruce Dooley, and Malcolm Beck, who uh, Marjorie is familiar with. I'm not selling anything on that channel. It's just me and my camera, and I just go to these events and seminars, and um, I film these uh, and share it with the audience. So if uh, you could uh, check that out and uh, let me plug it, I'd appreciate it. I also sent you a friend a friend request. If you could approve that, uh, man, I'd be in your debt. So uh, if you could check it out, let me know. Uh, thanks for your thanks for your time. Oh, well, thanks for your kind words. Let's take these things one at a time. Let's start out with the rabbit. Uh, starvation is what the phenomenon is called. First of all, the story you heard is completely fictitious. It's not even the root of the uh, the factual part of the myth. 
Uh, the root of the factual part of the myth is that people that maybe had to live off the land, specifically uh, mountain men, Native Americans, that maybe would have to live off of things like rabbit and squirrel only and were not able to find other things, would develop a deficiency of fat. Uh, and this could lead to a person who was eating a reasonable amount of calories and still uh, malnourished to the point of possible starvation. Uh, first of all, when you're raising your own rabbits and they're well-fed, they have a far uh, greater fat content, even though they're very, very lean, uh, than um, a rabbit from uh, a, a you know a native environment. Uh, even a farm rabbit's going to have a lot more fat on it than a, than a mountain rabbit or a field rabbit that's out in pasture and things like that. When they can get into things like corn and all, they tend to put on quite a bit more fat than you might think a rabbit would do. Secondly, even if you were in a situation where you were having to live off wild rabbit, wild squirrel, things that are very lean like that and you didn't want to develop this problem, if you did things like also consuming the kidneys and the liver, there's actually quite a bit of the fat content there. Uh, so it's all about people that lived just on the meat protein itself and had no other sources of fat. Uh, next up, there is no American out there today that is in a deficiency of fat in a long-term shit at the fan. Would it be a concern? Yes. But if you are eating things like uh, legumes and uh, sources of natural oils such as corn, uh, sunflower seeds, nuts, and things like that, you're going to get more fat than you need. And if you're not eating rabbit every single day, you're also getting other sources of animal fat. So it's a non-starter thing. It's something that I really wish would go away, and I wish it's something people would quit repeating and parroting. I'm not picking on you for it. I'm just saying that people like you are out there believing this because it's such a prevalent myth. It's a myth based on a fact, but a fact that has to go into the ultimate extreme circumstances for it to even matter and even in that situation with a little bit of uh, anatomy knowledge and knowing where to find kidneys uh, and liver and if you were to cook that up with your rabbit and eat it even if you didn't like it you'd get enough fat content to compensate for the problem you can also a lot of times on game animals when you gut them you'll find yellow pieces of fat laying along their insides of their bodies in uh, the books that I read by Robert Rourke, uh, Used Enough Gun being my favorite one of them, and this Rourke was a guy that hunted Africa back in the glory days of African safaris just after uh, World War II. Um, when the Skinners and the, and the, uh, the you know the, the Game Boys basically would uh, go out and gut an animal, uh, it was a highly prized thing to be the guy that did the skinning and the gutting because when you cut that animal open, those pieces of fat that laid on the inside, you could take them for yourself. Uh, it was a highly prized thing. So there's all kinds of sources of fat that our modern society has done away with because, frankly, we don't need it anymore. We get plenty of fat. But it is, it is something to think about. But let's, let's say that you are actually concerned about this and your only source of protein uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is going to probably be rabbit. Oh, well, go get yourself a, a bunch of cans of uh, uh, Yoder's bacon and put a little bacon in with your rabbit. There you go. I mean, there's so many sources of natural fats and oils. And from animals and plants that are not messed with are your best sources. Things like olive oil. You can still store tons of olive oil. I mean, so if you're worried about this long term and rabbit's going to be your main protein source, it's, it's not something you can't address. Um, the next thing 
or you mentioned your YouTube channel. That's great. I'll give you a link. I'm happy to do that. You mentioned a name that I'm very, very interested in talking to. If maybe you could put me in touch with Howard Garrett, I'd love to bring him on the show. And looking at what you're doing, I'd possibly like to bring you on the show. If you'd like to be on the show, consider going by the guest link and, and filling something out. And maybe I can get you on the show and help you get some more exposure for that channel. Lastly, on the Facebook friend request, if you'll email me and you'll mention something in the subject line so it catches my attention and you'll send me your Facebook profile link, I'll do it. I can't do it for everybody. I'll do it for you because you called in and you gave me all this great content and material to talk about. But I will tell you this. Uh, being my friend on Facebook doesn't have a lot of collateral. It doesn't really help anybody out there. I get a billion requests a day. I turn most of them down because you can only have so many friends on Facebook and because it's cluttered and because let me tell you the truth about Facebook and Jack Spirico. When I go to Facebook, I'm generally on the Facebook TSP fan page. If you post there, I'll interact with you. If you want to get in touch with me directly, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I give it out on every single show. Facebook, the friend thing on Facebook with me is really a waste of your energy because 99% of the things that get posted by my quote unquote friends I never even see. The only way I do see it is when people message me and then I gotta go to Facebook and respond to you and I'd prefer you just email me. I guess I'm kind of old school with that. I do the Facebook thing for the show and to interact with the audience on a greater level. So being a fan of the TSP fan page, the Agriculture fan page, those are the ways to get the most interaction and bang for the buck out of interacting with me. And if you want to chat, use email. I read all my own email, and those of you out there who have done it know I do my best to reply to a great number of them. And with that, we are done today. It's been a great show. I appreciate everybody that called in, even Mr. Tinfoil Hat. Even though his numbers were completely fictitious, off the ball, nut job, whacked out. Uh, so if you want to be on a show like this, whether you're a tin hatter or a productive member of the TSP community, either way, you know what to do. You pick up your phone, you match some numbers. Those are 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. And we will try to get you on the air. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess. We follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for